on here. Good to go. I'm going to need a, a stand or something. Just steal this one? That one? What? No problem. How about a microphone? <laughs> well, sorry I'm preaching sitting down, but I've got a bit of a, a leg issue going on here. No, I got, I got, I'm robo-pastor. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I got a little bit of an issue going on with old climbing injury, so they've got me stuffed full of tubes and stuff, so I just tell the kids that I'm joined the Borg Collective, um, resistance is futile, you will be assimilated. So... <laughs> Well, that, that pastor and elders are away. Hmm. I guess we could do anything we want, right? Well, let me begin um, by uh, telling you guys, you know, uh, a bit of a confession. Uh, my wife and I have kind of a quiet battle going on in our house. You know, I'm it's supposed to be, you know, I'm a pastor, supposed to live at peace, but uh, it's quiet war. But it takes place over the television set. Uh, Glenda likes to watch shows like American Idol and um, America's Got Talent. That's okay. You know, I just find it a bit odd that it takes a Canadian, two Brits, and a German to determine if America really has any talent. <laughs> and when they do make a choice, a third of the time, the winner isn't even an American. Um, sometimes they're not even human. Uh, I, I like to watch history shows. That's my thing. Um, I, I always tell Glenn, I go, I'm a history buff, you're a fluff buff. I, and, and now, don't give me it's not that a chicken playing a piano isn't a thrilling experience, okay? You know, be still my heart. Um, it, it's just that I think that history tells the story of journey. It, it tells us how we got to where we are, and uh, I also think history can give us a, a degree of wisdom for the future. You know, for example, I mean, just in our, in our own time, uh, five years ago, Canada officially ended its involvement in Afghanistan, and that was probably a smart move. The American military is still in there. Um, most people in the United States think that Afghanistan is this little postage stamp of a backwater country that doesn't pose much of a threat, but history tells us that Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires. Uh, Alexander the Great, Britain, the Soviet Union, military powerhouses around the world have floundered in Afghanistan. And history tells us that no one wins a war in Afghanistan. Well, this morning I want to look at a story in the Bible that's absolutely anchored in history. As a matter of fact, it's really hard to catch this story unless you know the history behind it. It flows out of a conversation that Jesus had with a Jewish religious leader. You know, throughout his ministry, uh, Jesus was continually being challenged by religiously minded people who thought that he was misinformed about God. And the way Jesus responded to those people was to paint 
word pictures to clarify who his father was. You know, we call those word pictures parables. And, and the most complete collection of these father parables we have is in the book of Luke. Uh, with a little wisdom, I think we can examine these word pictures and start putting them end to end and, and begin to see an image of God the Father build uh, from all kinds of perspectives and angles. Well, I want to take you this morning to a parable in Luke chapter 10. It's one of the most uh, surprising, revealing, uh, perhaps even disturbing parables that Jesus ever told. But uh, in order to set the stage for this parable, we need a bit of a backstory. Uh, we need to do a little history lesson. And, I, I, you know, if you love the Word of God and you're hungry for explanation and, and meaning, I think you're going to find this interesting. I want to I start this story way back uh, at Noah's Ark. The Bible tells us that one day God decided to do a cleanup job on the planet Earth. So he went to a man named Noah. He said, gather two of each animal, uh, get your wife, get your sons, get their wives, get them all on a boat, build a boat, because it's going to get wet around here. <clears throat> and for 150 days, Noah went on a little sailing trip. And uh, before the ark finally came to rest on Mount Ararat in Turkey. And Noah and his family stepped off the ark and went about the business of repeopling uh, the earth. Noah had three sons. One of those sons was named Shem. And Shem had a son of his own called Ashur. Ashur's descendants eventually became the Ashurians, or what we call the Assyrians in modern day. Um, the, descend the, the Assyrians don't exist anymore, but the descendants of these people, they're still alive today. They range from all the way from northern Iraq across most of Turkey, right into northern Syria. Um, in the ancient world, the Assyrians were ancestor worshippers. They worshipped their forefather, Asher, and they worshipped him as though he was a god. Now, <clears throat> store that memory on a or that uh, name on a, on a shelf somewhere in your memory. I'll get back to these guys. Now, Noah had another son. Uh, one of his other sons also had a son of his own. Uh, his name, that son's name, was Arphashad. Arphashad was the grandfather of Eber. The descendants of Eber became known as the Eberu, or the Hebrew. Isn't that interesting? Um, the Bible is a record of the Hebrew story. At one point in their history, but we, we all know that Bible, basic Bible stories. During a particularly harsh famine, the Hebrews moved to Egypt where they eventually fell into captivity. Um, they spent a few hundred years building pyramids, carving sphinxes, you know, that sort of thing. But while they were there, the Hebrew nation divided into 12 tribes. Uh, in time, a man by, by the name of Moses came along. And God delivered the Hebrews from bondage. They escaped Egypt. They moved into the promised land. Each of those 12 tribes took up an area of land uh, 
that together is still known as Israel to this day. Now, it wasn't long before they got tired of being ruled by God and they decided they wanted a king to rule them. And they chose King Saul. King Saul was backed by 11 of those 12 tribes. Um, not all of them. He didn't have 100%, but he had most of them. Now, Saul fell out of favor with God, and David, who was backed by one tribe, Judah, took his place. David eventually united those 12 tribes. He lived out his life. He passed the kingdom on to his son, Solomon. When Solomon completed his reign, he passed the kingdom on to his son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam did not have the support of all 12 tribes. Um, only one other tribe, Benjamin, decided to come over and join Judah in support of him. So once again, the kingdom of Israel was divided. Um, since that day, the 12 tribes of Israel have never been reunited. But at the time, the 10 tribes occupied the area north of Jerusalem, and the two tribes occupied Jerusalem and the area south of Jerusalem. Now, these ten tribes in the north were kind of a questionable bunch. Uh, they fell into idol worship pretty quickly. They never showed up at the temple. They never went to church. They, were, they weren't even Christmas and Easter believers. In fact, God got so fed up with them that in 721, he let them get invaded. By who? By the Assyrians. The descendants of Ashur invaded and conquered the descendants of Eber, uh, the Hebrews, and they were taken into captivity. Now, the, the, the Assyrian king at that time, he, he's mentioned in the Bible, is a guy by the name of Sargon. Uh, he had a really unique idea of what to do with an invaded country. He thought, well, if I take most of the people in this invaded country and I ship them off and spread them all over my kingdom, and then I sort of cherry-pick from all the other nations I've invaded and then replace all those people, move them in, and if I put them under the authority of some of my own Assyrian people, they'll never have enough unity to launch a, a counterattack, a revolution. Smart move, it worked. Um, but that's what he did. What resulted in the northern part of Israel was this part Assyrian, part Jewish, mostly mongrel population so religion became a real mix. Uh, some people were worshiping the Hebrew God. Others were worshiping Ashur. Most people didn't know who they were worshiping. It was a real hodgepodge. But it got so bad that in the time of Nehemiah, if you know your Old Testament, well, Nehemiah was trying to rebuild the wall uh, and the temple in Jerusalem. One of these half-Assyrian, half, -Assyrian, half Hebrew leaders by the name of Sanballat, 
and he's in the Bible as well, looked at this Jewish temple going up, and after failing in his attempt to stop the reconstruction, uh, he thought, I can make one of these. Now, now, this isn't in the Bible, but it's in history. So he went up, back up to a mountain in the, in the northern area called Gerizim, and he built a copy of the Jewish temple. And when the Jews said, no, no, no we've, we've got the real temple in Jerusalem, he said, no, I've got the real temple in Gerizim. And when they said, no, we've got the real God, he said, no, no, I've got the real God. Um, it was all kind of childish, but by the time Alexander the Great rolled around and conquered the whole lot of them in 331 B.C., they hated each other, these northern and southern groups, hated each other so much that he had to create two separate states in order to keep the peace. The one in the south he called Israel. And the northern one he called Shomeron, which is Hebrew for watchtower. But he he didn't use the Hebrew word, he used the Greek version of the word, because he was Greek, which is Samarai, Samaria. A few centuries later, under Roman rule, the year 25 B.C., a puppet king by the name of Herod, and this is the same guy that the wise men went to see when, when Jesus was born, Herod built, rebuilt a beautiful new temple in Jerusalem. And he sent messengers up to Samaria, and he invited them to return to worshiping there. The Samaritans refused, and in 9 AD, things came to a head, It was customary for the Jewish priests to throw open the doors of the temple in the midnight on the Passover, but when they did it in 9 AD, a bunch of Samaritans rushed into the temple and scattered human bones all over the temple grounds, thus defiling the place, because to touch something dead makes you unclean, right at the Passover. So the Jewish priest banned the Samaritans from entering the temple from that point on. Uh, Hatred between Jews and Samaritans reached an absolute boiling point around this era. Well, 15 years after the bone episode, the son of a carpenter from Galilee walked out of a wedding feast where he had just changed water into wine And he began a ministry that would change the world forever. And that's the historical setting that broiled just under the surface when a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin challenged Jesus one day by asking him a question to test what he knew about God. Now remember, whenever we see that phrase, expert in the law, we're we're talking about, um, we're dealing with the Sanhedrin. In in Jewish religious law, there were councils of 23 religious lawyers set up in every city in the land. Uh, They convened um, every day except for the Sabbath and festival days, but they heard cases that were brought to them. Uh, These groups were known as the Lesser Sanhedrin. In Jerusalem, the council had 71 religious lawyers. It was kind of like a Supreme Court that heard appeals from the lesser courts as well as more serious cases. Biblical scholars think that when the the New Testament refers to Jesus encountering the Sanhedrin, 
he was engaging members of this greater Sanhedrin, it was called, these the 71 religious lawyers. We pick up the story in Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 25. And here's what we read. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. I want to take a few minutes and unpack this really unusual parable this morning. There there are five main characters in this story that Jesus told. Uh, The first is a victim. And, And I think there's a real sense in this story that Jesus did not want this guy to be identified. Uh, The only phrase he assigned to the guy uh, in Greek was a certain man. Um, In fact, the the three details that Jesus did give about him seem intended to tell us that his identity was also hidden from the people who came upon him. First, he was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Could have been anyone. Uh, Detail two, He'd been stripped of his clothing. No identifiable markings to give a clue of his status or his nationality. Um, And detail three, he was half dead. In in Greek, that's hemithanes, halfway to dead. Uh, It's a word used to suggest unconsciousness, unresponsiveness. Um, In other words, he looked dead. Now, that's the first character. second character in the drama is the priest. Uh, this is a guy who's supposed to know the most about his father in heaven. And now, at the time of Christ, priests served at the temple in two-week shifts. Uh, this particular priest was probably on his way to Jerusalem, not from Jerusalem. 
Uh, he was probably on his way to perform the tasks of the temple, possibly the sacrificial service, uh, presenting offerings on behalf of the people. He would have to be ritually pure to do this. You know, as a higher echelon member of society, he was probably riding a donkey or something. But as he approached the man who looked dead, he didn't want to become ceremonially unclean from being in contact with a dead man. The law of Moses said that anyone who touched a dead body became uh, ritually unclean. So this man chose religion over actual service. He chose ritual over love. You know, this, I think this priest stood for everything the father despised about the way the Jewish people had distorted religion. Um, he thought he was doing the right thing. He thought, as a good Jewish man, I should not be doing this. As a good Jewish priest. But, you know, there's a subtle challenge in there for me when I read that. You know, is there anything about my life that I think I've got nailed and the Father actually despises? You know, this this priest had chosen convenience and comfort over love and true fulfillment of the law. And through self-deception, this priest was convinced he was doing just fine with God when in truth he was at the opposite end of the scale. Well, the third player in the drama is a Levite. Uh, All priests were part of the Jewish tribe of Levi, but not all Levites were priests. This guy might have been a teacher, maybe even a rabbi, possibly even an expert in the law, which is that phrase that's used to describe members of the various Sanhedrins around the country. Um, just like the guy that Jesus was telling the story to. This, this might have been his, uh, his sort of co-worker. But the text implies that from the Greek that he was also going in the same direction as the priest. He might have even known that the priest was up ahead of him. Um, but he also avoided this apparently dead man. It may be that he thought, well, you know, if a priest can get away with this, so can I. Um, it's more likely that he simply held to the letter of the law and enjoyed or, or, or ignored the spirit of the law, which would be a, put a real interesting spin on this story because the man, this expert in the law that Jesus was telling the story to, um, seemed to have this right. He, he kind of got this nailed. When, when Jesus asked this expert, expert what he perceived to be in the law, the expert didn't start by citing the letter of the law. He actually did really well. He gave the spirit behind it. Essentially, he said, you you inherit internal life by loving God and loving people. Jesus Jesus basically said, correct. Uh, You nailed it. Full marks. But the very, very next phrase that Luke wrote, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? You know, that's a... That word justify in Greek is dikaio. It means he wanted to be perceived as being righteous. Well, the fourth player in the drama is the Samaritan uh, that the story is named after. Now, remember what I said about these guys. Tainted blood, half Assyrian, half Jews, 
worshipers of false gods at a copycat temple, defilers of the real temple, hated and despised by every Jew alive. I don't think we can underestimate how shocking it was for Jesus to introduce a Samaritan into the story at this point. You know, Jesus was going down the list, you know, of, of, of the, the elite in Jerusalem, you know, priests, Levites. The next logical one would probably have been an average Jewish citizen, but, but not a filthy Samaritan. Jesus walked right off the known map by introducing a Samaritan into this story. He made the classic arch enemy of the Jews into the hero. Not only that, but, but, but this Samaritan demonstrated a unique heart response to this injured man he came across on the road. Some translations say that he, he took pity on the man. Others said he, he had a compassion on him. Um, I want to show you something really, really interesting about the word that Jesus used here. I'm, I'm a writer. Words fascinate me. How they're, how they're used fascinates me. Um, the Greek word for taking pity on somebody is sympatheo. Uh, it's the word we get our English word th- sympathy from. <clears throat> it's the right word to use in this passage. But Jesus didn't use that word. Instead, he used a really unusual phrase. The phrase he used was splodge nizomai. It's like saying it ripped his heart out when he saw this guy. This is compassion so deep and so physical that it literally buckles you. The word is used 12 times in the New Testament. Ten of those times, it's used to describe the passion of Jesus Christ for people around him. The other two references, one is in this story, And the other one describes the compassion of the father in the prodigal son, that story. The father who represents God in heaven. Now, this is interesting. At the time of Jesus, the Bible wasn't just available in Hebrew. They had done a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was known as the the Septuagint. Um, In that translation, the Septuagint... This word, splutch nizomai, uh, was used exclusively to describe the compassion of God. What does that mean? Well, it means that the authors of the New Testament knew exactly what they were doing when they used this word to describe the compassion of Jesus Christ for those people he encountered in his travels. They were suggesting the divinity of Jesus. And Jesus knew what he was doing when he used this word to describe the compassion of the father in the story of the prodigal son. He was saying the father of the prodigal son represents God. But to use this word, splagshnizomai, to describe the passion of the Samaritan, Jesus was bringing a fifth character into the story. He was saying this Samaritan represents my Father in heaven. This is what my Father is like. This is who he is. Now go and be like him. I don't think we can overstate the shock effect this declaration would have had 
on a listener who was an expert in Jewish religious law. In answer to the question, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus had just said, love is the true religion of my father. Authentic faith, no matter what you think it might be, no matter what ideas and beliefs you think it's comprised of, authentic faith consists of love, and that love has all kinds of faces. My father, represented by this Samaritan, wants you to know that. That's radical. That's stunning. There is no rebuttal that's even possible to that parable. We, I can only imagine the expert in law standing there speechless, trying to wrap his head around what he had just heard. Well, I want to close this, moment by, this morning by taking a look at that last statement that Jesus made to this so-called expert in the law. Jesus wrapped up his parable by asking, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to, to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And when the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him, Jesus said, go and do likewise. That, that's an important statement. That's, a, that's a, a critical signpost because it's also directed at us. Whatever it was that made this Samaritan a neighbor to this injured man, we're supposed to be doing the same. What was it that the Samaritan did? Well, he did three things that that I can discern from this story. First, he was willing to love. Now you might think, ah, it's not such a big deal. We're all willing to love. We're loving people. Come on. But are we willing to have that gut-wrenching compassion of God flow through us into the lives of others. Not just sympathy, not just pity, not just looking at somebody and going, oh, that's sad, but splugsh nizomai, a God-impassioned, desperate love for others. Do you weep for your lost friends and neighbors? Do you cry out to God, for the community we live in that's moving every day closer to a Christless eternity. You know, we got some empty seats in this place. You need, you need to fill them up. Uh, the good news is you got some place to bring the harvest. You got a nice barn. God will send people to timbers if you create a culture of love in your church. We need to love one another. If that's in any way lacking, the only answer is to love more. Help one another. Serve one another. Give up our time and comfort for one another. Samaritan traveler didn't just come on this injured man and say, well, today I'm going to do something loving. It flowed out of who he was. the, The decision to help a wounded stranger had been made long before he actually encountered him. The Samaritan was committed to being a catalyst for love in the lives of everyone he encountered. You you miss this, and you miss who the Father really is, who he's calling you to be. You know, the second thing the Samaritan did was he ignored barriers in order to love. 
He was a Samaritan traveling in the south. Racially, culturally, religiously, in all things, he lived his life behind walls, separated from others. His blood, his religion, his lifestyle were all tainted by the poison of the Assyrians. You know, we need to understand that the Father is blind to walls. There are no barriers in the kingdom of God. He loves all of his creation. He died for them all. He invites them all to come into his arms. God doesn't make judgments as to who deserves to be loved and who doesn't. And finally, third, and I, I think this is the biggest one, the Samaritan was willing to sacrifice to love. It always costs something to love. It always risks something. The greater expression of love, the greater the cost. It cost Jesus Christ his life to love us. You know, the reason we struggle to form authentic community in today's church is that we want inexpensive love. We want a deal. We want low-cost love. We want a bargain. And when we, we do demonstrate love, like the expert in the law, we want to justify ourselves. We want to be perceived as righteous. Look at me, God. I'm loving. I'm righteous now, aren't I? God is not made real in creeds and confessions. He's made real in love. Not just the emotion of love, not just the rhetoric of love. God is made real in love in action. Love is our religion the evidence of our relationship with God. It's the, the proof of our membership in his family. It's the assurance of our eternal destiny. Who was the neighbor to the man who was robbed? A dirty Samaritan? An occultic, rebellious, unclean, half-blood who wasn't even allowed to set foot in the temple? but one who nonetheless demonstrated love in action. Astoundingly, Jesus ended his story by saying, that's who I want you to be like. That's the guy who's like my dad. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's a, a lamp us, shines its light in places that um, sometimes we haven't had light shone in for a while, Lord, but uh, we need to respond to you, we need to, um, need to bear our hearts and let you be who you are uh, in our lives. Lord, we don't want to be Old Testament Christians, people who stop just at getting our sins forgiven. The new covenant is the covenant of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who um, moves us to do things that are not natural to us. So, Father, I pray for this church, for a passion for those who are wounded and lost, lying half dead, going to a Christless eternity, Lord. 
that you would give them that splagnizomai, um, Lord, that uh, God-impassioned, desperate love, that they would go out and bring the harvest in, Lord. And Father, we, uh, we believe that we're praying within your will and that you will do it. So um, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.